Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guest today is the great Pauline Black. Hello, Pauline. Hello there, Andrew. Hi. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's, it's an absolute delight to have you on the show. For the, I mean, to, to explain to our listeners, for the past 44 years, Pauline has been the front woman of Coventry Two-Tone Group, The Selector, as well as a solo artist in her own right, an author, and an award-winning actor. She's just about to release The Selector's 16th album, The Vibrant. 16th, album, yeah. yeah. 16th mm-hmm. studio album, The Vibrant and Hopeful Human Algebra. Um, with original selector drummer Charlie H. Bembridge. So before we start, here is the title track from the LP, Human Algebra, written by Pauline Black, Neil Pizer and Arthur Hendrickson and released on DMF Records. Cold ground was his bedless night Rock his pillow too is a record very much of the moment. It deals with such big contemporary issues as fake news, climate change, political corruption, social media. And I guess my question is, is in two parts. The first one is, do you still feel the need to stay connected to what's going on? And also in terms of, and this is kind of my response to listening to the record, is it hard to remain optimistic in the face of all that? Well, First of all, I mean, we're human beings. If we're not connected to what's going on around us, then we're sad individuals, aren't we, really, I think. Um, I'm certainly not one of those people that has their head in the sand or pretends that things are all rosy and all great. And you could argue, I suppose, that we started in 1979, and uh, that was the year that Margaret Thatcher um, became prime minister in this country. And we were welcoming in, well, certainly ushering in, 18 years, I think, of conservative rule. Um, So here we are, I don't know, 13, 14 (laughs) years, is it now? I don't know. But we have sort of um, umpteen prime ministers in recent uh, months. So from that point of view, it feels curiously, I suppose, like, hey, is, is this indeed deja vu? Are we living through the same things? Have we really sorted anything out? And I think that's where the connection with the album album comes from. Uh, we're using the word algebra as a metaphor, really, in terms of maths of how do you find the solution to a problem? Yes. You yeah. use algebra yeah. that gives you the unknown. And there are so many unknown factors out there at the moment that if we don't get right... Um, really will just cause the implosion, if you like, of, of the human race. I mean, climate change, um, human algebra, the song actually deals with knife crime, all these social problems within our youth at the moment. We can't abdicate responsibility from that. Um, you know, we've got to look at that head on and ask the questions why this is happening. And not only that, also take on the fact that it's uh, 
all these people who die, they might just be headlines to us passing through our newspapers, our social media. But these people are real. They have families. And uh, this tragedy just goes on and on and on. And it's not just like ones or twos now. It's it's a lot. And I think we need to think about it. But you remain, you, and you have always seen to me, you have remained an optimist. And I don't mean that in a Pollyanna sense. I mean the sense that like you see, you still see the possibility for change. You still see the possibility for, you know, enlightenment in the midst of all that. And I would say, certainly with a lot of people, and certainly after, you know, people coming out of lockdown and dealing with mental health issues, that that is not easy. Well, I don't know whether it's easy or hard. It's just what I do. Yes. Um, it, it has been necessary throughout my life. I mean, yeah. I was born in the 50s. Yes. Um, if you were mixed race in the 50s, you'd been adopted. You were the only black kid in school and all of those kind of, you had to be optimistic. Otherwise, yes. you would seriously have gone under. So it has always been that kind of way. And and I've always looked at, I mean, the first sort of political things that I were aware of were like civil rights in America. Mm. And I mean, the optimism of black people in the South yes. um, was carried through the blues, all of those things. And and I was really enthused about that. I mean, I was really enthused about people like Martin Luther King, you know, the the the, the marches and all of those kind of in 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 the face of great adversity, like you couldn't even sit at a lunch counter. And that, believe me, that really impinged on a little girl growing up in Romford in Essex. Yes. Um, uh, thinking that there is a little girl somewhere in the southern states of America trying to sit at a lunch counter now, and she's being told she can't. And why? Just because of the color of her skin. So that made me optimistic that things change. They, yes. There was the ability to change. And governments, all those kind of, you know, autocratic um, institutions, they're hard to change. But yes. if you don't try and change them, nothing changes. And, and so I come from that aspect. And you have seen change in your time as a chronicler of the country and as a chronicler of kind of politics and everything. It may, you know, it may seem like kind of we're in a terrible situation with this government at the moment. But you've seen progress, you've seen change, and you've yes, enormous it. change. I mean, you know, I'm in my seventieth year, so I mean, you couldn't not fail to see change. Yeah. Um, and uh, as a black person in this country, anyway, you couldn't fail to see change. You might have wanted it to um, happen a little far, well, a lot faster, not yes. a little faster. Um, but it's interesting, you know. I mean, the truth—it doesn't matter whether it's buried, obscured, or whatever. Um, but you know the decades as they go on the truth rumbles back to the surface all the time um you can't lie your way out of stuff as boris johnson i think is finding (laughs) (laughs) but um it's uh yeah the truth uh comes out now the record that you've brought in to talk about today might come as a surprise to people who have not read your autobiography it is basket of light the third studio lp by the british folk group pentangle released in october 1969 now before we talk about it let's play what is probably the best known track from the lp this is light flight which was a huge hit used as the theme music for the bbc's first ever color drama series take three girls and written by Jansh Thompson McShee, Remborn and Cox, and released on Transatlantic Records.
did this record come into your life? Oh, how did this record come into my life? Well, it, it actually came into my life because I watched that series. Yeah. Um, and I was at exactly the right age, myself and two other friends at school. And it was like, you're on the cusp of going out into the world, of leaving home. We were all going off to university or, or to do other things. Uh, one of us was going to London. I was going to Coventry. The other one was going to, I believe, Lancaster at the time or whatever. And um, we saw these girls on the television doing these these extraordinary things for the time. One was a single mother. One played the cello and was going to do music. The other was an artist. And it was exciting because you didn't see women doing that. You saw them getting married and having fairly mundane kind of lives after that with children and stuff. So we very much felt that we were these women. And that song, Light Flight, you know, just the opening thing, let's get away, you say, find a better place, just fitted us beautifully. So anyway, to cut a long story short, because I've gone on a bit, <laughs> is, you I didn't buy that album for another two years. That was 1969. I came to Coventry to go to what is now Coventry University, but Lanchester Polytechnic at the time. And during Fresher Week, I saw MC5 and Pentangle. Wow. And Pentangle came on the stage and... Uh, and launched into Light Flight. And I thought, I know this song. <laughs> so <laughs> um, before that, you'd not made the connection. No, you I hadn't made the connection. You knew it as the theme tune to no, take I three didn't girls. even have a record player. Yeah. Record players weren't allowed in my house. <laughs> um, so uh, if you wanted to listen to anything, you'd have to go around a friend's house to listen to music or whatever. And I think that our passion at that time was probably for... Um, uh, uh, Cat Stevens, yes, <laughs> teaser and the fire cat, and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, so anyway, there's Pentangle on the stage. You can see all these wonderful people, and Jackie McShay, she was so beautiful. And, um, and I thought, well, I've got to go and buy that. So, I went to the only record store in town, which was called Jewel Hansen's Records, and ordered it, got it. And um, and again, I did, still didn't have a record player, so I had to play it on someone else's system. But the people I got to know um, uh, uh, in that first week played um, things like crumb horns and wonderful things like this, all kinds of oldie worldy traditional English um, uh, instruments. And they loved this album and said, oh, you, you, you don't know about this. You don't know about Bert Yance. You don't know about John Remborn, blah, 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 blah. And uh, and I just used to listen to it all the time. So it's to me, it's a wonderful record. But it goes on from there, if I may. Yes, right? please do. Right. When I first started playing guitar, which probably about 10 years later, and just a couple of years before I joined the selector. So we're talking um, about 1977, 78? Seven, seven, yeah, yeah. yeah, about 1977. And um, I was, I, I'd been playing guitar and I'd been doing a bit of singer-songwriting, doing some Dylan songs, attempting, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell song here and there or Joan Armour trading. But I got a gig and it was the first gig I'd ever had. And it was supporting, although I didn't know it at the time, but Jan, she was passing through Coventry and he used to come to Coventry folk clubs quite a lot. And there was a great guy who ran folk clubs and I'm I'm their uh, patron now, CV Folk it's called. <laughs> but anyway, the guy's name is Pete Willow. What was the name of the folk club? Uh, it I, I think I can't actually remember. It was to do with Pete Willow because he had a column in our 
local paper. So all folk clubs were to do with him, but I can't right, tell you I what see. the so exact this, folk club So this was wasn't at the old Dyer's Arms then? No, this wasn't at the old Dyer's Arms. This was, I think, at the beer engine. Oh, right. <laughs> well, yes, yes. I think, I think. Yeah. Um, it's changed names, so so it could have been the Golden Cup. Um, but they all had wonderful names in those days, and they were always full pubs. And uh, anyway... I turned up, I got £10 and I sang 10 songs. Wow. And through that, I met the only other black person there who happened to be doing um, politics and philosophy at Warwick University. And he came up to me afterwards. He was Jamaican and sort of said, you should come and write songs with me. And so off I toddled to uh, have a drink with him, I think. And we sat around talking music. And, um, and he introduced me to the people of the selector later. Uh, and we wrote songs together. One of them is on the first album of, um, of well, our debut album, the Too Much Pressure album. Going back, as you said, rather casually, you performed 10 songs. Were these 10 cover versions or were you already a songwriter at this stage? Oh, no. The, some of them were mine. Yeah. Some of them were mine. Um, I think a couple were mine. But um, there were there was a Joan Armour Trading song, a Bob Dylan song, uh, probably a Joni Mitchell song from that time as well, but um, and a couple of mine, one about the Yorkshire Ripper, which <laughs> a bit sort of over the top, really, for a, for, a, for a folk audience. Not traditional. Was this very much a folk song and sort of in, influenced yeah, by... Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of, yeah. But when we say folk song, I mean, I am not talking kind of finger in your ear No, business. not at all. I'm yeah. just talking singer songwriter kind and, of stuff. And probably and yeah. influenced by people like Dylan, by people like Pentangle yeah. And, yeah. and Joan yeah. Armatrade. But I yeah. had already kind of, you know, been part of the little circle that was at the old Dyer's Arms and, you know. Well, this is this is what I want to know about, kind of that how that had come about, because you kind of said that you you got your gig supporting Bert, Bert Yansh, but what was this kind of little scene around the Dyer's Arms? Oh, well, the scene around the Dyer's Arms is basically, it was run by a guy called Dave Bennett, who was absolutely wonderful. Um, he ran it and it was a Sunday afternoon. It was always one of those, they do, they'd, do their thing, say, from midday until about two. And then, of course, it would all shut down. All the shutters would go up and we'd just carry on. And yeah. occasionally a couple of furies would come through, you know, from the band and stuff Fantastic. like this and uh, and play songs. But it was really anybody who wanted to turn up and sing and thought they could. And um, I just started going to it and nobody asked me to leave. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured I must be doing OK. And uh, as usual, I was the only black person in the room, but that didn't seem to matter at all. And everyone was very friendly and uh, and great. You know, there was somebody as far away, I think, as as Latvia. We used to call him old Tex or whatever. And he used to do all <laughs> kinds of songs on accordion and stuff. And for some people played the banjo. And uh, we had a great blues guy uh, called Mick and. And um, yeah, it was just a really great scene. And what do you think that there were that pen, the pen, that Pentangle album was an influence on why you kind of wanted to be part of that folk scene? Do you think it was kind of elemental? Well, yes, it obviously was, but I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. Um, it was, uh, I mean, everybody, when I talk about these things, expects me to have spent my whole youth listening to ska music or reggae music, yeah. which really, really isn't true. Yeah, I was introduced to ska music at 15 by some skinheads who were at yeah. my school. But um, then I decided, oh, well, I'll be like all the cool kids. I'll be a hippie 
Yeah. <laughs> so and then, of course, you know, sort of the late 60s unfolded into the 70s and uh, and a big Afro, you know, admired Marsha yes. Hunt, all of this kind of thing. Exactly. So, you, so it was so, influenced in that way. Absolutely. So before you're kind of playing at the Dyer's Arms, you kind of like people like sort of Marsha Hunt, Angela Davis and everything, you get your Afro, you're kind of into sort of the, you know, Black Power, mm-hmm. and James Brown and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And I'm fascinated how, and I guess it's just that teenage thing of, you know, putting on different colors, putting on different cloaks, you know, of saying kind of, this is me, but then kind of you get welcomed into that folk scene and then you become a folk singer. Yeah, but it's, it's, I suppose it's a bit like, yes, you're you're right. I mean, when you're young and you're in your teen years and early 20s and things, you are a bit of ch- chameleon, aren't you? Mm. You're not fully formed. You're yeah. probably relatively fully formed by the time you're 30 but you're still searching around and like what's good what do you like and uh, and stuff like that and um so yeah I was trying to find what suited me but when I actually it was quite strange when I was asked to choose a record I thought this is probably the record that most influenced everything that I do (laughs) but I didn't know it it's got nothing to do with the musical sounds I don't sound like Jackie Mishy or 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 whatever I don't play like Bert Yanch but those sounds um I found in other musicians like in our lead guitarist for um Neil Davis in the selector he had this wonderful way of playing with um delay and chorus and which made it sound bigger than it was and played in tunings and um different time signatures like light flight has three different time signatures through it well we can't boast three, but on my radio has two different yes, signatures yeah. in it. You, you you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, so All definitely. of those things are going on. Yeah. And you don't realize maybe what was at the core of all this, what you were listening to. Um, but when I look back to it now, that was definitely the record. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club with the lovely Andrew. You've got a female-fronted group. You've got a very kind of collaborative approach to music. And you've also got kind of on that album a kind of production that kind of highlights all the different elements of what they're doing, of how how important that bass is and how important the guitar yes. is. And if you, know, if you were in my job as a journalist and you had to draw parallels between listening to that record and listening to say the first two selector albums you can hear them you can hear yes them yes and we had two guitarists yes two guitarists in dueling in that sort of way that exactly. they do you know yeah. we'd had which, a banjo rem, which rem and neil nearly played the sitar as well yes. <laughs> he did have a sitar so all of those things were all rumbling around at that time and I'm fascinated that then you, you mentioned him briefly. You met this uh, young guy called Lawton Brown at the Dyer's Arms, and he becomes your first writing partner. But he then also introduces you to stuff like Steel Pulse and Bob Marley, doesn't he? Is exactly. That yes. Yes. And the Last Poets. Yeah. Oh gosh, of course. <laughs> the yeah. Last Poets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those those elements also kind of can't help but play into what becomes the selector as well, especially the last poets. Yes. That kind of declamatory, yeah. sort of righteous, but kind of, you know, incendiary kind of lyricizing. Yeah. You know? Oh, we were incendiary, I mean, yeah. at the beginning. It's it's funny because um Dance Craze, uh, which was a movie that was made about all the different bands in, in, which is in, in coming, which Well, is I went out. to the pr- the launch, yes. Oh, they right. cleaned up it, all of it and it looks wonderful and all pristine and stuff like that. And um there, there was a premiere at the BM, BFI, uh, the yeah. IMAX. 
And uh, it was extraordinary to watch again because we were so kind of right on. We were yes. so aggressive. <laughs> we were so, you know, you see your younger self now and you think, oh, wow, <laughs> where did that come from? Um, so, yes, at the moment, I think maybe it's as you approach that big 7-0 that all these things, all these strands in life all come back and you begin to see how they all connect up. But I have another story about the the album. Later on, later on, right, um, uh, I had a few years where um, I stopped the selector and it was when I was thinking about writing the book. Yeah. And I thought, um, because I'd, I'd also by that time, I'd played Billie Holiday on the stage and um, in London at the Tricycle Theatre. And I was approached by an agent to... Um, go out and do the songs of Billie Holiday and do the songs of um, of um, Nina Simone. And so I tried to put a band together and I had a friend at the time and her husband was Pick Withers, who was the drummer in um, Dire Straits. And um, there was another guy called Don Pipkin, um, who uh, has his own band, but has also played for Paloma Faith and all those sort of things. And I knew him via a friend. And so I thought, well, we need a bass player. And Pick said, oh, I know a bass player. Um, and who should walk in but Nigel Portman-Smith, who oh, was fantastic. the bass player in the later version. Yeah, a later version of Pentangle. Of, yeah. of uh, Pentangle. So it's like Pentangle has run parallel with my life without me ever knowing if you kind of yes, see what I mean. Yeah. And he was wonderful. He was wonderful. And it was it was a great little tour. And um, yeah, then, then we didn't do that. And I did something else. <laughs> And it's funny because, like the early, you I mean, in the, I should mention that your um, your autobiography, Black by Design, is an absolutely fantastic book, and Thank you. Um, it's sort of incredibly sort of evocative. And there's a lovely bit in it where you're you're talking about the early look of the selector, and you're saying it's, <laughs> and it was all feral jumpers and bell bottom jeans, and it's very much kind of like you can still see before you get that kind of makeover or you're dragged into those kind of secondhand shops you can still see the elements of possibly a folk look to what the kind of group would have looked like before you had your makeup oh yes 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 i mean neil davis has some uh, photos of himself that crop up occasionally and he looks just like oh god my i can't um led zeppelin's lead singer Robert, uh, Robert Plant. Plant, yeah. He just looks like Robert Plant. All the gold curls and everything, you know, shirt right down to here with a bit of a medallion going on and bell-bottom jeans. You know, I was going, I think, in our very first show that we did, uh, which was somewhere in Worcester. No one can remember the venue. Um, I, I, I'd been looking at Chic because Chic were the only things that were around at that time. And someone said, spandex is good, Pauline. Try that. <laughs> <laughs> So I did the very first show in pink spend, spandex oh, pants, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And and with a, you know, an afro still, smaller one than I'd, I did, had uh, kind of sported earlier on in my life. And then somebody came came along and said, you can't be dressing like that. <laughs> <laughs> so they dragged me off to Oxfam, looked around all the sort of secondhand things and that. And, um, and then the hat came into play a little bit later. Mm. Is, I mean... If you'd not met Lawton, do you think you'd have remained a folk singer or do you think the inevitable kind of change and evolution would have still happened and you'd have kind of... I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. I really don't know. Um, you know, I I tend to live... I, I, I tend to feel that, well, I might not be charmed by any other person's standards or whatever, but for, for me, I feel as though I've lived a relatively 
charmed life because every time something has come to an end, something else has just popped up and said, well, try this or do that. Or someone has come along and said, come off with me and come and do this. And it was just like one of those things. I mean, at that point in time, I thought I was just going to be a senior radiographer, eventually a superintendent radiographer, might write a book on anatomy, maybe with someone else at some point and how to um, x-ray it. And I'd wobble off into my dotage in a cottage somewhere in the country. (laughs) But instead, I did that. (laughs) And did you go back to listen to um, Basket of Lights in reference to this? Did you kind of revisit? the? Oh, yes. Yes. And what was that like? What was it like kind of revisiting those sounds? Um, well, every now and again, I go back and I reference and, and and listen to Light Flight because it just kind of, it's that whole, you feel as though you're on this fast train speeding towards somewhere. I don't know why, but it makes me feel like that. And it makes me feel as though anything is possible. But all the other songs on there, um, you know, like Once I Had a Sweetheart, that's so every time I hear that it makes me cry and I don't really know why well I do know why but um it's uh it's such a beautiful song why is it that particular song uh, once I had a sweetheart what power does that have over you um well at that time I mean when when I was at college um I suppose really my first boyfriend he hung himself um and uh, terminated his life outside the student union and um, that kind of really messed me up. For, yes. And I had to repeat a year and I still wasn't over it then. And I just couldn't be there anymore. So I went off and um, did a radi- radiography course yeah. somewhere else. Uh, I stayed in Coventry, but by that time I'd met my husband. But um, it, it just brings up those feelings. Two things bring up those feelings, Night Flight and um, Joni Mitchell's Blue album. Yeah. It's curious, isn't it, how there are tracks that kind of will just contain those emotions, the emotions of the yes. time. Yes. And you revisit them and you are back there yeah. despite yourself and despite exactly. anything, you know. Exactly. And that's the power of music, isn't yeah. it? It really gets to the essence of of what emotion is. I mean, we give words to emotions, but emotions are far more ephemeral than that. Yeah. And music has the capacity to contain that ephemeralness, if there yeah. is such a word, but you, you know what I mean. And it's mm. kind of like you, you, you may not be able to put these things into words or put them down on paper, but there is something within a particular song that will do it for you. Yes. Yeah. It's mm. just the purity of her voice. Yes. And uh, and there's this wonderful wistfulness and longing and and such a simple arrangement. It's yeah, it's quite heartbreaking. This is Once I Had a Sweetheart, arranged by Yansh Thompson, McShee, Remborn and Cox and released on Transatlantic Records. about you as a teenager and you kind of um finding your way in life is there any other because we you know we we've we jumped about a bit is there any other track that you wanted to talk about or something that you wanted to say that we've maybe not touched on um 
are you talking about a track from Basket of Light? Yes. Um, one thing I, I discovered today, the joys of Apple Music, was that um, the, uh, oh, which one is it called? Um, the one where she's talking about um, uh, the, the house carpenter. Yes. That's written by Dylan. Yes. Yeah, so I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And uh, it was only on my revisit. I mean, I'd heard that and heard that, you know, yeah. it's such a poignant song, isn't it? Sort Absolutely. Of, you, you go for the riches. I mean, it's the real sort of, you know, don't go with him. Yes. <laughs> you know, stay with what you know and yeah. don't abandon your children and all this. Otherwise, you'll end up in the hell of the sea and and all this kind of thing. And uh, I, I, I didn't know that. But I mean, I, at that time, I was a firm Dylan fan as well. Because you were so. doing, when you were doing your kind of folk songs, you were doing Dylan cover. Was a Dylan cover the first song that you played live? Is that right? Um, probably. And very badly. I used to have this little blue bound book that um, I used to have all the chords written on. <laughs> I didn't need glasses in those days. So I'm literally playing like this, sort of, you know, because my guitar playing was never as good as um, as, as my singing. And, um, I, and, and then I lost it. Oh. I lost it. So all of those songs <laughs> were just kind of lost of what I used to do. And by that time, I'd gone on to something else. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know is the answer to that. But, but yeah, kind of the, the ability. If I had to stand up in court and say, I, <laughs> I, I, I you know, I'd have to pluck one out of or whatever, you know. But yeah, the, the ability that albums have to sort of transport us back is um, is profound, isn't it? It's incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this is a very special one, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's the, that interplay of the guitars and that voice sitting on the top and yeah. the bass underneath as well, just driving it forward um, and such tasteful drums. I think, you know, the, we, we kind of touched a little bit on it earlier, but the the respect that they have for each other as musicians and players, that there's no sense in which kind of anyone is lost in the sound of that album you can hear mm. them all as you can hear them all as individuals yes and i think yes. that's a kind of key element you know yes. kind of that sort of maybe also kind of had you know an influence there's a kind of socialism to their production you know there's a kind of yes yeah that's fairness. absolutely true yeah. that's absolutely true but i think as well i mean some of them are coming out of a jazz tradition as well Very as much a, so, yeah. a traditional folk and there always had been respect among yes. jazz musicians. I think that's very different. You yeah. know, I mean, it's um, being post-punk. It was like anyone and their mother could get up with a guitar yeah. as long as they had three yes. chords. I mean, I know Dylan says that as well. So, but but it it it's a different way of being or thinking and 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 presenting it. But yeah, they were the I, folk. They were the folk group most tied into to jazz and the traditions of jazz, weren't they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that shines yeah. through, I think, is the musicianship that, that shines through all the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you. You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. OK, so now we come to that part of the show where two Mojo staffers pick their favourite new records. My guest for today's pick is Mojo editor John Mulvey. John, what is your fave new record this week? Hello, Andrew. The album I've picked is a new one by Aruj Aftab, who's a Pakistani singer currently based in New York. It's quite hard to um, describe what she does, really, but I, I think I'm always a bit wary of the phrase post-genre, but it does feel a bit uh, pertinent to her music, really, 
because it's kind of a mix of devotional Sufi music, jazz, and something akin to ambience. But maybe another way of looking at what she does is, if you ever liked Jeff Buckley covering Nasrat Fatih Ali Khan, Aftab maybe approaches that middle ground from the opposite direction. She's making pretty experimental music. She's done very well in the last year or so, winning a Grammy and getting praised by Barack Obama. But it's a mark of her uncompromising vision that this major label debut, it's called Love in Exile, by the way, is not exactly a big play for the mainstream. Instead, I guess it's a, it's a very stealthy improv album. And it's, uh, it's billed as a trio with the jazz pianist Vijay Iyer and the bassist Shahzad Ismaili, who I think the first time I think I saw him play was with Will Oldham, which is uh, yeah. quite a distance from, from this record, but in a good way. Anyway, the Love in Exile, it, it's a long and immersive record. And I'm conscious that when we uh, do play an excerpt from it, it probably won't quite do it justice, to be honest. But maybe imagine an album that exists somewhere between ECM and old school 4AD. And if that sounds appealing, give it a go. Okay, well, let's hear an excerpt first. This is um, the track To Remain, To Return, written, arranged and produced by Aruj Aftab, Vijay Iyer and Shahzad Ismaili. And released on Verve Records from the album Love in Exile. <laughs> I can hear the Jeff Buckley and Nusrat um, comparisons, definitely. But I can also hear sort of other Sufi stuff like um, Sheikh Ahmad Al-Tuni. But also, and this is kind of, do you not kind of also hear, maybe this is what your 4AD reference to is, it's very Cocteau Twins, isn't it? It's, it's really kind of, Cocteau Twins, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like when I, um, I reviewed the, her previous record for Mojo, it's called Vulture Prince, it came out. I don't know, maybe two or three years ago. It also came, I think initial copies of it came with um, a bespoke perfume as well. Right, okay. It's quite good. But I think one of the things that I compared her with on that record was not so much Cocteau Twins, but uh, this Mortal Coil and and Liz Fraser's version of Song to the Siren. Because it's not that... It's not that wordless or, or that new language side of Elizabeth Fraser. It's like, I think one of the wonderful things about those recordings she did for This Mortal Coil was that we discovered what magnificent diction and enunciation she actually had. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's certainly something that Aruj Aftab has. I mean, it has a kind of amorphous kind of languid melancholy to it you know and kind of you know which you kind of i'm always drawn to that kind of thing and i couldn't help but notice the similarities to my own choice this week which is um the new one from lana del rey um did you know there's a tunnel <laughs> under ocean boulevard which kind of i mean from its david lynchian title onwards 
it has this kind of impermanent quality of a barely remembered dream and kind of like the Aruj Aftab, it kind of bleeds out from kind of, you know, it's kind of genre parameters and it's kind of, it's vast, it's kind of sprawling. You can hear the ghosts of kind of girl group laments in there, but it's all kind of draced, draped in kind of ghostly empty room echo. You've got these solemn str strings and also she absolutely loves kind of that quality that you'd probably describe as piano decay. You know, that sense of, <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah, that sense of like kind of the remain of what, what is left after, you know, kind of that sustain and decay. But, and I, I, I mentioned on Twitter and I got, and I got kind of, I made a couple of people quite cross about it. I said, it's some of it reminds me of the kind of spoken word tracks that Anne Magnuson used to do with Bongwater, this kind of hallucinatory LA poetry. And someone, someone read that and said, well, you know, Bongwater were funny. Lana Del Rey hasn't got a sense of humor. Uh, but yes, I think there is a certain aspect about Lana Del Rey where you feel she does take herself to rather more serious than Bongwater. Well, but, you know, I, I do think there is a, there is a kind of a self-reflexive wit to a lot of what Lana Del Rey does. Yeah, I was thinking about this um, at the weekend, actually. Well, so couple of things really what first is i think there's a really big similarity between both these records the, yeah the lana del rey as you say and the um arush aftaba and and a key part of that is they stay in the same place more or less for an yeah. extremely long time absolutely in that in the, in the, they're quite tonally narrow yeah um but they they have a kind of confidence to stick with it for I yeah. think they're both about an hour and a quarter long record they actually. are both very long records yeah it's interesting because superficially there are quite strong similarities between what Lana Del Rey does and Father, Father John Misty does. But it struck me when I was pondering this that what Josh Tillman does as Father John Misty is that he is neurotically obsessed with showing you what he's doing and showing you how clever he is and showing you that he operates somewhere in the gap between Josh Tillman and Father John Misty. And he's constantly looking to camera and saying, can you see what I'm doing? He's very much in the centre of the room when he is being Father John, John Misty, whereas Lana Del Rey is very much not in the centre of the room. There is a sense that she is peripheral and that kind of that she exists on the margins both as kind of this character that she's created but also the sound that she's created yeah it's kind of like it's there's a, um kind of i think it's i've got a record by helmut lachenman this kind of you know sort of modern classical record yeah, right. and it says that it should be played just below the point where you would normally expect to hear it so it should exist sort of just below the kind of recognized point of hearing and there's something about the lana del rey this album almost you know specifically that kind of you feel that you should play it like that that it doesn't exist in the center and it doesn't exist at high volume it should yeah. be going on almost i mean i guess the word i'm avoiding trying not to say is liminal. that ambient. no oh, is that is, is, yeah. or either either of those two <laughs> words liminal or ambient but you know there is a sense of kind of you know of, of drift you know that that yeah. it, it it's kind of it exists 
you know on the air and it, and it kind of exists elsewhere it, it's playing in the next room but it's also this sense that kind of she kind of almost recognizes that this stuff will fall away you know that there's a sense of kind of impermanence about it almost you know while you're at the point of listening to it the the track that one of the standout tracks that i, I kind of wanted to play and play the show out with is um a and w which kind of finds her kind of in a ramada in you know watching the, this this show forensic files but basically also kind of contemplating her worth as a as a woman in modern america and it is kind of this sense of it touches on issues of value and invisibility and worth i guess the point is that you know whilst this album exists kind of on the peripheral almost you know as as this kind of ambient drift there are these points and the points hit you hard where you know she suddenly kind of comes into focus and you realize that she's singing about things that are incredibly serious and profound and you know and that sense it's almost like kind of coming either coming out of a dream or those bits in a dream where you suddenly kind of remember something and you focus on something and it's the bit that you wake up with you know but it's kind of i find it really affecting i think that there's another song on the record fingertips where she talks about um her family and there seems to be a lot about the family on this record, very much actually. so yeah um but she's talking about her sister's baby and wondering whether she's going to ever going to have children and yeah. just starts talking about wanting her brother to give up smoking and things like yeah. that there's a lot there's just this kind of it it seems it's it's very artless in a very artful way which i suppose is is her shtick in a yeah. nutshell really but also say the, th the thing about a and w is how how the song turns on a dime and changes yeah. from this sort of uh canyon chamber folk into what's kind of like trip hop, really. It's yeah. like it, it reminds me of Tricky. It's it's that kind of very sort of smeared, muttering kind of heaviness. But but it also has got that kind of um, you know like kind of early sixties girl group kind of you know yeah. singing the nursery rhyme thing at the end as well. Yeah, you know. It, but it but it's all of a piece. Even yeah. Even though it feels like two radically different songs kind yeah. of cut and shut together, actually it flows perfectly and the mood is sustained through yeah. both. It's, it's quite a piece of work, I'd say. This is A&W, written by Lana Del Rey and Jack Antonoff from the album Did You Know There Is A Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard, released on Polydor Records. experience of being an American whore It's not about having someone to love me anymore Now this is the experience of being an American whore Okay, you have been listening to Pauline Black John Mulvey and myself, Andrew Mayo. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. This is Pauline Black signing off. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. 
missing words.